You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Today, as we begin this new series on uh, God's law, I want, um, I want to just kind of remind you of where we've been going as a church and kind of paint a picture for uh, what we're trying to do uh, even this year. Uh, one of the desires that we had and prayed through uh, for our church family this year was a desire to kind of return to some of the basics. Uh, when you think about what shapes uh, Christian formation and uh, our lives as believers, uh, you can't get more foundational than the importance of prayer and uh, the Lord's Prayer and, and the Ten Commandments. Uh, and this is uh, been woven into the history of the church and teaching uh, all the way from children to adults to new believers the importance of, of understanding our ability to relate to God as his children in prayer uh, as well as to understand the significance of his commands and our call to holiness. And uh, and so uh, at the beginning of the of the year after uh, we, we got the year started, we've spent the last eight weeks or so looking at the Lord's Prayer and the High Priestly Prayer and understanding uh, how we are to approach God in prayer and how foundational it is that we have access to God the Father through uh, the work of the Son and by the power of the Spirit to approach Him in adoration and in submission and in dependence, understanding God's desire for our unity and our sanctification by the Word and our being sent into the world on mission. And uh, and, and as we've walked through all of that, I, I pray that it's been an encouragement and a blessing to you. Uh, we also have an opportunity to, to not just learn about prayer, but even to pray together tonight at 730 at the Lebs House. We'll be gathering together for, for prayer, just an opportunity to be before the Lord as His people, pray asking God to work in our own hearts, asking God to work in our community, uh, an opportunity for you to be a part of that. I would encourage you uh, to, to do that and to, to be a part uh, of, of praying, not only individually, but praying corporately with the body of Christ. Uh, but today, as we begin looking at the law, we, we understand uh, that God's law is foundational. Uh, God, uh, as we're going to see throughout this message, as soon as God creates, we see him commanding. As well as as soon as God redeems, we see him requiring us to walk in obedience to his commands. Um, And as we think about the significance of the law, I think it's important for us to understand what we mean by it. And part of the confusion when we talk about the law is that there can be a few different things that we mean by God's law. So, for example, we can say the law in reference to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy is known as the law. When you read through, uh, particularly when you get to the New Testament, um, Jesus will talk about how all the scriptures, the law, the prophets, um, all and the Psalms are all fulfilled in him. When he says the law, he's referencing the entirety of the, the first five books of the Old Testament scriptures called the book of Moses, the Pentateuch or the law. It's a reference not just to do's and don'ts, but it's a reference to instruction uh, and a reference to, to how God commands his people whom he's redeemed to live uh, as his people. Uh, but it also could be more, more specific in reference to the Mosaic covenant. Uh, which, uh, as you heard in Exodus 19, uh, read just a moment ago, uh, is after God brings Israel out of Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he makes a covenant with them that as they enter into the land, they are to live as his people under his law in his land. Um, And the Mosaic covenant in its totality, Exodus through Leviticus, uh, encompasses about 613 commands. Uh, And and the law can be in reference to the totality of the Mosaic Covenant. But it also can be in reference to the Ten Commandments, which is found in Exodus 20, which is seen as a summation of God's moral law. Um, And over the next few weeks, as we walk through these Ten Commandments, we'll often be referring to God's law in this way. Uh, in specific reference to these 10 words, these 10 commands uh, that are a summation of God's moral law. But it also can mean just generally any of God's commands. And particularly, we're going to see in Genesis, after God creates, he gives Adam and Eve a command uh, that they are to keep. And a reference is a general command. Anytime God enters into covenant with his people and relationship with his people, that covenant comes with his commands. 
Um, and we see that uh, even before we get to Exodus. And, and then also in an interesting way, if you get to Romans 7, just to kind of forecast, the word law is used in, uh, in the kind of way that means principle. Uh, Paul talks about when he wants to do right, uh, he, he finds that uh, the temptation to do wrong is there. When uh, he doesn't want to do wrong, uh, he still finds himself ended up doing it, that there's this law uh, that's at work, um, and he's using it in a general metaphorical way in reference to the idea of a principle, um, <clears throat> not like the teacher, but uh, of a thought, right? Um, and so uh, these different ways, uh, the law is used throughout the scriptures, but at the core, all of it is talking about how God reveals himself and, and has, uh, there is a measure when God reveals himself that there is accountability and responsibility before God that we are to obey and to keep his commands. And so uh, as we talk about the Ten Commandments, I want to give you a pop quiz this morning. Uh, this is the kind of pop quiz where you don't have to pass it to your neighbor and grade it. Uh, your teacher won't see it. Uh, you can write it down or you can do it in your head. Uh, if you've got neighbors, if you need to cover it up, you can do that if you need, need to. But we talked about how foundational the Ten Commandments are. So uh, the pop quiz is, can you write down in summation form the Ten Commandments in the right order? Uh, these vital uh, commands that God has given us, that he has revealed, that are a reflection of his moral law, uh, that are foundational to the Christian life. Uh, do you know them? Uh, if, if you were to, to have to uh, take a quiz, which I'm asking you to do now, uh, that nobody will see except God, he knows already. Um, <clears throat> do you know his... Ten Commandments. I see some of the fingers working, um, and uh, that's, that's great. Uh, you know, when we think about the Ten Commandments, I, I don't think our primary problem is one of memory. Though I do think if, if we were to grade our exam, that at best some of us may have gotten all the commands, but our order may have been off, perhaps. Uh, I don't want to presume against any of you. Uh, but we may also feel like, man, there's one that's missing out there. I'm, I'm not quite catching it or I'm not quite thinking about it. So we, we certainly should recommit ourselves to understanding God's law, not just to understand it, but just like the, the Lord's Prayer. It's one thing to know the content of the Lord's Prayer, one thing to know the content of the Ten Commandments, but the real significance is applying it to our lives, understanding its meaning, understanding that the Lord's Prayer teaches us to approach God in adoration and submission and dependence, just as the Ten Commandments reflect not only negatively how we are to avoid what is displeasing to God, but positively encourages us to pursue what is pleasing to Him, both in, relation to, both in our relationship to God as well as in our relationship to others. Uh, and in two weeks, as we dive into the Ten Commandments, we'll see how the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables, if you will, in relation to the first four in relation to God and the final six in relation uh, to one another. Um, <clears throat> it's important for us to understand, uh, to know them, but more importantly, to understand their implications for our lives. There was a recent survey done on this point. As I said, I don't think our primary problem is memory, but I think it's important for us to recommit ourselves to memorizing them if we haven't. But the recent study done, I think this is a number of years ago now, um, but it's, it found that about 14% of Americans could recite the Ten Commandments. Um, <clears throat> I'm hoping that our, our percentage is slightly higher here in this room, but um, if not, 14% is the, the average of the Americans who could recite the Ten Commandments. However, they found that 25% of Americans could tell you all of the ingredients at a Big Mac, and that over three-fourths of Americans could name all three stooges. And so if we can remember three guys that make themselves look like idiots and seven ingredients in a, in a hamburger, like it, it should provoke us to go, man, I should know the Ten Commandments, right? Um, and we, we may know uh, what's in a Big Mac. We don't understand what it does to our body. So it's even more important to know what the commands are, even if we, uh, especially so that we can understand what they mean for our lives. But as I said, our main problem isn't one of memory, as important as it is. I think our main problem, primary problem, as it relates to our relationship to God's commands, to his law, is one of authority. It's not memory, but authority. You see, in our, our day-to-day, <clears throat> we have elevated the internal self to the place of authority in our American culture. 
And that comes at the detriment of downplaying any external authority in our lives, whether it be our family, our, uh, our nation, or especially God's authority, and primarily God's authority. I've been reading uh, a book um, called A Strange New World by Carl Truman, which he kind of addresses this topic of uh, our turn to uh, what he calls the psychologizing of the self, the sexualizing of psychology, and the politicization of everything. Um, and in this book, I have a few uh, quotes to this next slide, and I didn't include them in my notes, but I included them on the PowerPoint, uh, if we can hit the next slide here. He, he describes the modern self in this way. He says, the modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same, to, to give social expression to our inner feelings, our in, internal sense of who we are. The modern self assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm that behavior. So there's been a turn uh, as he looks at and he traces the history and in the book uh, if you're looking for a 140-page book to read uh, or listen to, it's, it's one well worth listening to that I think speaks to a lot of issues we face as believers today. Uh, that, that we, he kind of traces the popular um, kind of thinkers uh, that, that, that have led to this, but how often we, we don't read Nietzsche or we don't read um, <clears throat> Rousseau and all these you know, philosophers and psychologists. We just embodied what they've said in a popular level, kind of pop cultural sense. And what it's resulted in is that we've internalized the significance of ourself. He, he, see, he sets out in his book to explain how 50 years ago, or maybe even 20 years ago, if, for example, you went to a doctor, and I'm using something that's a, uh, a particular uh, issue that many face in our culture that we should have compassion on, uh, but if you went to the doctor with a feeling of gender dysphoria 20 years ago or even 50 years ago, um, the doctor, and you said, I feel like I'm a, a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would say to you, that's a problem uh, of your mind. We need to address your mind. Um, if you go to the doctor today and say, I feel like I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, they'll say, that's a problem of your body. We need to change your body to align with your thinking. And what he says has happened is that we've internalized the internal to the detriment of any external authority. And so we place the internal uh, feelings, and, and don't get too hung up on feelings. I think even just the internal sense of who we are, the, the real you, the real me. And we know this to be true uh, because we put now personal pronouns in front of truth, right? That this is the real expression of me. This is true to me. Um, and that means the elevation of the internal over the external. And another author and, uh, and scholar, Robert Bella, in this next slide, defines expressive individualism, the sense of elevating the self, as each person having a unique core of feeling or intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. <clears throat> I, I know that this is true because I recently sat through a graduation uh, speech in which this was the main message. To be true to you, to express yourself is, is what's necessary and to, and to be the kind of society that receives everybody's expression of their self. It's created uh, what another uh, scholar calls uh, a sense of uh, a culture of authenticity. Uh, in this next slide, you'll see uh, this point, <clears throat> Charles Taylor, philosopher, modern philosopher, says the culture of authenticity is one where each one of us has his or own way of realizing our humanity and that it's important to find and live out one's own um, identity as against surrendering to conformity with the model that's imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation, uh, religious or political authority. And I'm not trying to, to kind of have a psychology session here, but I'm pointing this out because what you're seeing is a, com a, com a comparison or a competition between external authority that should define us and internal authority, which we get to define ourselves. And this is the world in which we live. And it's particularly the world in which the Ten Commandments seem incredibly offensive, limiting, and oppressive. Amen. And yet, as we look at God's word... He tells us that his commands are good. He tells us to delight in his commands. He tells us to keep his commands. He says that in his commands is life. And so it can't be that God's external authority is limiting to our realization of who we are made to be or our expression of who we truly are. Instead, it must be that we have elevated our internal self 
to such a degree that we've placed it in a position culturally and even tempted as believers to place it in a position of authority that it was never meant to bear. And so as we approach God's law, I do it both for two desires, to help us as believers, as his church, to rightly understand God's law and relate to God and respond to him in obedience, but also in recognition of the challenge and the, uh, the dynamic that we face in our culture to be people who are ready and aware of the temptation to, to elevate the internal over an internal authority in ourself over the external authority of God's commands. And so today what I want to do is, is kind of jump around. We're not going to be in one passage, um, but to give a sense of the significance of this topic, I want to talk about two reasons that we can trust God's authority. Two reasons that we can trust God's authority. And the first is that God is our creator. And this kind of piggybacks on um, a series that we recently did, Genesis 1 through 11. Um, <clears throat> What we find in, in Genesis 1 through 2 in particular is the story of God's creation. How God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth is what Genesis 1-1 tells us. <clears throat> and, and it tells us how God made everything good. How he made everything uh, according to his plan. And he made humanity at the peak of his creation in his image. Uh, in, a, in a sense that we are made to reflect him, to know him and be in relationship to him. And after uh, we see God's work of creation unfold, we find in Genesis 2.15 that God has placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And as he creates and makes humanity in his image, we also see that he commands. The God who creates is also the God who commands. It says in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man that you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. So here we see, uh, as one commentator said, all of human accountability and responsibility before God is grounded in this instance in creation. He made us and we owe him. He creates and he commands. If we don't recognize the simple truth according to the Bible, then blindness itself is a mark of how alienated we are from God. It's for our good that we recognize that God creates and he commands. Therefore, we owe him not because he is a bully, but because without him, we would not even be here. Without him, we would not exist. We must give him an account because it's from him that we come. So when we think about God's creation as a starting point, what we recognize is that God did not create us out of a sense of need, but God created us out of an overflow of the uh, expression and the community that he had within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing for all eternity. God created us out of an overflow of that, not in a sense of need, not because he lacked something and brought something out of that, but because he desired to create us so that we might know him and enjoy him. And when we think about, when we think about why we are here, fundamentally, I don't think this is too much of a um, of an of a overgeneralization, but um, one of my favorite thinkers and authors, Francis Schaeffer, put it this way. He said there's really two options to understand why we are here. You either take the position that we, we came from an impersonal, by-chance beginning, and that's the evolutionary, materialistic understanding of, of how the world came to be and how we as human beings evolved and ultimately came to be who we are today, or you take a personal, by design beginning. The idea that there is a God and that God created by design uh, human beings and this earth for a purpose and with, with, with a plan in mind. And if you take the latter, then there really, there really is no reason not to accept that the internal self is the priority seat of authority in your life. Because it is... The world is what you make it to be, and, and, and as the, um, the evolutionary thinkers have described, it is a survival of the fittest, and, and so whoever can climb up the ladder should climb up the ladder. Whoever has power and authority should use power and authority to their advantage and to their good. But if there is an external, personal beginning with, with God's design in mind, then there's some sense of responsibility and accountability that we owe to him. And I think fundamentally we know this to be true because we live in a world in which we believe in, in human equality. But if you stop and you just think, pull back for a moment, the foundation of human equality 
cannot be a impersonal by chance beginning. Because by definition, an impersonal by chance beginning that means the survival of the fittest means that you there is no equality on which we can ground it. We, we may collectively have come to a, a, a society, we may collectively have come to a point where we say, well, yes, survival in the fittest in the animal kingdom, but in the human kingdom, we're all equal. Um, and we, it just took us a while to get enlightened to figure that out. But when you, come to, when you come to a personal by design beginning, it actually says, no, we actually do have a foundation for human equality. And it's a belief that God is a creator and that we as his creation are made in his image, that we are made equally in God, in his image, male and female. And we have equal dignity and, 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 and respect uh, that we ought to give one another. That's the foundation of human equality in our society that we now accept even apart from a sense of transcendence and apart from God. And so it speaks to this reality, how God is our creator. It speaks to something in which we can trust about God, that, that he made us and he's made us by design and he's made us for a purpose to know him and be in relationship with him. And, and God's commands require two things from us. It requires trust and it requires obedience. And we know this is the case because in Genesis 3, as sin enters the world, the first thing that Satan does is question whether or not we can trust God. Genesis 3, 1. Serpent shows up as the embodiment of Satan. He says to the woman, did God really say? The first attack is the attack against trusting God and his character. A belief that we can't trust him, that he didn't know what he was doing. A belief against his goodness. It goes on in verses 4 through 5 after the interaction. She says, you can't, uh, did God say you really can't eat from the tree? The woman says, yes, he did. You shouldn't eat from the tree uh, or touch it or you will die. And then Satan says, no, you will not die. Direct defiance against what God has said. And then he calls into question God's goodness. He's in fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see here, we have the questioning of whether or not we can trust God and his goodness. I heard one pastor, Mark Dever, say it this way. Since the beginning, Satan has been trying to undermine God's authority. And what he wants more than anything is to believe that it's impossible, impossible to be told no by God. And at the same time, to believe that God actually loves us. What Satan wants us to believe, what sin would have us to believe, is that it is impossible that God's no always means that God doesn't love us. That God, for God to tell us no means that it's not possible for him to love us. Any restriction, any command that God would give us is him keeping something from us, is the belief of of sin. But instead, what we see, the reason that we can trust God's authority as our creators, because God says, I, he says to us, <clears throat> uh, I am, uh, he tells us who he is and then how we might live. And he shows us that this is actually by his good design. Not him keeping something from us, but instead actually him showing us the way in which we are designed to live. He is our creator, and that means that we owe him our obedience. He's our creator, and it means that we can trust him. That he made us by design, with intention, with a purpose, that we might know him and enjoy him. And to know and enjoy him means to walk in obedience to him. It flips on its head this, the, the belief that it's our internal self that should be our authority as opposed to an external authority. Rather than the external authority being our detriment, it's actually meant to be our delight because it points us to who we were made for and what we were made for, to live in relationship with God. So God is our creator. We can trust his authority, but he's also our redeemer. Throughout the scriptures, we see, even here in the fall, God's plan in the midst of sin to bring about redemption. He tells us in Genesis 3.15 that redemption is going to come through the offspring of a woman. And that plan would unfold throughout the scriptures. But before we get to Jesus, we see this pattern of, of redemption prior to God's giving of commands. And it's found right here in Exodus 19 and 20. Some of you, our ladies studied through Exodus 1 through 13 earlier 
uh, a few months ago and are going to be studying it this summer. And, um, <clears throat> and we've uh, talked a little bit about this in our equipped class as we walk through the, the storyline of the scriptures. Uh, but we see that God, uh, in his plan to make a people for himself, called Abram, called him Abraham and his offspring, and uh, they, uh, God promised to make him a great nation. And part of his plan to making him a great nation is he's going to send him into Egypt. And they were going to be in Egypt. God used uh, the unfolding of Joseph and his relationship with his brothers to take Joseph to Egypt, put him in a position of prominence, and then led the whole family there to save them from famine and starvation. And then they stayed there. They grew and they multiplied. They had favor. But eventually a new pharaoh came up and he oppressed the Israelites. He enslaved the Israelites. And they were there for some 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And God said that was going to happen and that he wouldn't forget them. And God reminded them that he saw them, he heard their cries, he saw their tears, and he was going to respond. A, an encouragement and a reminder for all of us that God sees us, he knows us, right where we're at, right in the difficulty, and he draws near to us and he plans uh, to bring about his redemption. And he does so through the exodus of bringing uh, Israel out of Egypt through the plagues that culminated in the Passover, um, where God spared all those who sacrificed the animal, put blood over the doorposts of their house, brought Israel out of Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, parted the waters, brought them to Mount Sinai. God had redeemed his people. And as a redeeming God, he says to them, now I'm taking you to be my possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, as we read in Exodus 19. And before he gives the Ten Commandments, look at Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2, and it says this. Then God spoke all these words in reference to what's to come. But here's how he began. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Before God gives his commands, he reminds them of his redemption. We can trust God's authority because he's a God who not only created us, but when we fell into sin, he put into plan and then executed that plan, our redemption. He is not a God who created us and kicked the world into motion and stepped back, but he is a God who made us for himself and in our sin, which separated us for, from him and brought about spiritual death and brought about physical death and all of the suffering that came with it, he did not leave us in that condition, but pursued us and redeemed us. And this is the story of the Bible that God redeems and those whom he redeems, he gives his commands that they might live in obedience to him. Never the other way around. It's never obey God so that you can be redeemed. It's always God has redeemed you and freed you from sin, so go and live in obedience to him. It's for our good and it's for his glory. That's God's plan of redemption. And we see here that before he gives his commands, he reminds them of his redemption. And I want you to think about the significance of this for the people of Israel. For 400 years, they've been enslaved. And as they're enslaved, you know what that meant. That meant every day they had somebody giving them commands, telling them what to do, how much to build. We were told as it comes to the time of Moses to redeem Israel from Egypt that the taskmasters made it more difficult for them, doubling their, their responsibility but holding back the, the supplies that they needed to be able to do it. They had to work doubly hard to keep the commands of their masters. And here God has redeemed them, showed his mighty and powerful hand, his outstretched arm. And you can just imagine the picture that they saw as God in the, in the Red Sea swept away those masters who had enslaved them and oppressed them, reminding them that God is righteous and just and, and he will vindicate his own name. And now they're about to get 613 more commands. Can they really trust God? And I think the reason God reminds them of who he is and how he's redeemed them is because of this. God's commands are not to be seen as oppressive in nature. His commands are to be seen as gracious in nature. They are not oppressive in nature. They are gracious in nature. And this is because God's grace precedes his commands. Salvation has always been from Old Testament to new salvation by grace through faith in God's promises. In the Old Testament, the promise pointed us forward to the Savior. In the New Testament, the promise points us back to the accomplishment of the Savior. But salvation is always by grace, a free gift that we do not work for or deserve, but that God gives us 
And he gives it to us by faith to be received, to trust him and to trust in the promise of his provision for our salvation. And it's then those who are saved by his grace, who are freed to walk in obedience to God's command. You see, when we are saved, all of us are transferring being a servant to sin to becoming a servant of God. We think that we're free without God. The reason we reject external authority and elevate internal authority is we think that makes us the most free. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Don't step on me. This is the American spirit. Don't tread on me, right? No taxation without representation. There's a little American history for you, right? Boston Tea Party. Not to conflate American history here with Bible history. But the point being, all of us internally don't want somebody else telling us what to do. And at a fundamental level, we think if nobody else is telling us what to do, we're the most free. Right? Could be our own boss. It's like the, the taxi driver or the Uber driver says, I love being my own boss. Nobody can tell me what to do. Now, where is it that you wanted to go? <laughs> right? we, we, we have a master even when we put ourselves as that master. And we're enslaved to ourself and to our sin. And when God frees us, when he redeems us, the language that he uses is that he frees us. Not from all authority, but to live and enjoy his authority. Look at John, John chapter 8. Jesus unpacked it this way for us. <clears throat> In John chapter 8, verse 30, he was teaching uh, and saying many things, and many people believed in him. And it says, then Jesus said to, to the Jews who had believed in him, that now those, those who had believed in him received him. He gives them this command. He says, if you continue in my word, that means to keep his commands, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, we're the descendants of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Some of an odd statement for them to say the descendants of Abraham were enslaved in Egypt and now they were under the hand of Rome, but they saw themselves as free from anyone else as, as the descendants of Abraham. And Jesus responded, truly, I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not remain in the house forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you will really be free. Jesus is the son through his redeeming work on the cross. It sets us free from sin. We transfer allegiance when we trust in Christ from serving ourself and our sin to trusting in Christ and his provision for our sin. And we rest in the fact that God's grace precedes his commands. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25 kind of unpacks the same story uh, of, of God's commands for holiness within, in response to the work of redemption that he's done for us. Listen to, to the way it says this. He says in 1 Peter 1, 13, the title is a call to holy living. Therefore, with your minds, be ready for action, sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. As obedient children, do not be content, conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, of elevating yourself or, or your own sinful desires. But as one who has called you as holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy, God says. And so he appeals. Uh, um, I, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's works, you are to conduct yourself in reverence during your time on this earth as strangers, as exiles. Now listen to his reasoning. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. You can't buy your salvation. You can't work for your salvation. But you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Therefore, since you have purified yourselves by obedience to the truth, by believing the gospel, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, he says, because you have been born again, 
not of imperishable seed, but imperishable through the gospel, through the living, enduring word of God. It's our salvation by grace through faith in Christ that compels us to live holy lives. So it, I don't know if, if you struggled with this before you became a believer. Sometimes when you grow up in the church, you hear the constant call to follow God, to obey God. And it's easy perhaps to think, okay, I've got to obey, I've got to obey, I've got to keep up, I've got to perform to a certain level, and then God will accept me. But the whole message of the Bible is that you can't perform enough to be accepted by God. God alone accepts us on the basis of his work on our behalf, by grace, through faith, and his promise. And as we respond to him, we then work out our salvation in obedience. We receive salvation by grace through faith in his promise, which points us to Christ. And in response to that, we live in obedience to him. Not to get something to him, but in response to what he's given to us. And, and if you aren't yet a believer, or you're thinking through the claims of the gospel. Can I just encourage you today that, that God's commands are given. And here in a moment, we'll, we'll talk about this. God's commands are given us to show us our need for him. None of us have kept his law. All of us are guilty of breaking his commands. And if, if you say to yourself, I don't lie, I don't steal, I've never been angry, I might question you. But even if, even if you said, I've done my best to live an upright and immoral life, God says if we don't honor him as Lord and worship him as the one true and living God, then we're idolaters. And as idolaters, we deserve his judgment. And his law is given to reveal our sin and to show us our need for his forgiveness, which he provides. So hear me today as I talk about his law and how we can trust God's authority. Don't hear me saying you need to try harder and if you do better, God will be pleased with you. Hear me saying that God invites you to trust in him. To receive his grace that would enable you to follow him. Don't try to live the Christian life before you've trusted in Christ is what I'm trying to say. Trust in Christ and then live in the freedom and the joy of the Christian life that he's called us to. Kevin DeYoung in his book on the Ten Commandments says, we need to hear it again and again. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. Jesus does not say, if you obey my commandments, I will love you. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet in John 14, 15 and says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All of, all of our doing is because of what he has first done for us. We can trust his authority because he is our creator and he's our redeemer. And ultimately, the connection is God saves us so that we might enjoy the life he created for us in the beginning. That's what God and his redemptive work does is, is enables us through trust and obedience to him to pursue the life that he created us to live. The design that God made us for, sin has led to brokenness. And in our brokenness, we try all kinds of things to live good, to live, live it up. YOLO, you only got one life, do whatever you want. We, we try uh, drugs, we try alcohol, we try success, we try to prove ourselves. All of it snaps us back into the reality of brokenness because of sin. It's only through turning from our sin and trusting in Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death and his resurrection that enables us to, to pursue God's design as he intended in the beginning. So we can trust God's authority rather than trusting in our own internal self-authority. We can trust in the external authority that God has revealed in his word and his law that points us ultimately to Christ. And so this means two things. I want you to, I want you to rethink your view of the law in light of what we've said here. <clears throat> Listen, consider Psalm 119. There's a lot of places we could go, but because of time, I'm just going to focus on this. <clears throat> Psalm 119, pretty much the exact middle of the Bible. It's an acrostic alphabet poem in the Hebrew that basically is uh, like a hundred and, I don't know, a hundred and, let's see, 76 verses of delighting in the law. In the external authority that tells us that we were made to be in dependence on God and to walk in obedience to his commands. Listen to what he says in, in verse 1. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction, his law. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have commanded that your precepts be diligently kept. 
If only my way were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Never abandon me. Skip down to to verse 14. He says, I rejoice uh, in the way you revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I delight in your statutes, the commands, all 613 of them. And I will not forget your word. All throughout the um, Psalm 119, I, I encourage you to read through Psalm 119 this week and circle the amount of times it says delight. And look at how it calls us to delight in God's word. Here's three ways I think we need to rethink our view of God's law in light of what we see here. We need to, we need to learn to delight in God's law. To, to delight in how God has revealed himself and his character to us and see the law as an invitation to delight in the lawgiver who made us and who redeemed us. We need to respond with diligence, both in studying them and obeying them. We ought to be eager to to open the word, as it says in verse 18, uh, to open my eyes that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instructions. And then, as it says in uh, in verse 4, that we might diligently keep them, that we would be diligent about this, not lackadaisical, not indifferent, but diligent towards God's law. And then ultimately devotion, that we would be devoted uh, to walking in obedience to him, not relaxing our obedience, but uh, understanding the beauty of obedience, of delighting in the law, of, of seeing what Jesus said in John 14, that our love for God is actually expressed in our obedience to God. And if, if you have children or you remember this with your own parents, if you are telling your parents or telling your spouse how much you, you love them, but then by your actions you show the opposite, you know, I, I love you, Mom and Dad. Okay, here's what I need you to do. I don't want to do that. And Jesus even gets on that very practical level to show us that, that we express our devotion to him through our obedience to him. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commands. So God's word challenges, I think, to rethink our view of the law in light of what he's revealed, that we can trust his authority and therefore our heart's posture towards the law should be one of delight and diligence and devotion. Even in Romans 7, and we'll talk next week about how Christ changes our relationship to the law, but even in Romans 7, as Paul explains how the law exposes our sin, he tells us that the law is good. We don't need to do away with the law in the sense of, of dismissing it or minimizing it. we need to understand how it's fulfilled in Christ and how we then relate to the law as we trust in Christ. But the law is good and we should delight in it and understand how God reveals his character in it. And that that brings us to the three uses of the law that we're going to come back to this a few times, but uh, this is a way in which uh, the articulation of the purpose of the law has been spelled out in, in church history, particularly dating back to the Reformation in the 1500s under John Calvin and Martin Luther and some of the other church reformers. They said there are three uses, the pedagogical use, the civil use, and the normative use. By pedagogical, what they mean, and Chris prayed this in the beginning of our service, that the law is meant to be a mirror. As we look into the law, it reveals our sin. And in revealing our sin, it points us to our need for a Savior. And that Savior we see throughout uh, the Scriptures is ultimately Christ who fulfills the law on our behalf and bears the the curse of the law on our behalf. If you want to just write down Galatians 3, 19-26 and write down Romans uh, 8, 1-4. These passages show us that the law reveals sin and that as it reveals sin, it leads us to Christ. The law isn't contrary to God's promises, Paul says in Galatians, because if the law could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But scripture, he says, verse 22, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were all held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law exposes our sin and points us to our need for a savior. In Romans 8, it says that Christ has done what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh. And by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh through his body on the cross in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, that we might walk in obedience to his commands. 
We see the pedagogical use or the, the use of how the law uh, is a mirror that holds up, that shows us our sin and points us to our need for Christ. As we walk through the Ten Commandments, we'll, sh- we'll see how it exposes our sin and points us to Christ. But also there's a civil use, the sense that um, throughout history that the law, the law can't change the heart, but it can uh, restrain evil, that it's a, a bridle, if you will, that restrains evil and its impact on others. Romans 13 tells us that the, uh, the, the God has given government authority to punish what is evil and to, um, <clears throat> to approve what is good, that there is a sense in which the law can restrain sin, not saying that we need to Christianize uh, the land, but believing that God's moral commands are actually good, not just for those who believe, but for all people, because God is our creator and our redeemer. Therefore, uh, it's a good principle that we do not murder, that we do not steal, uh, that we uh, allow these things to, to bridle or restrain sin. But then <clears throat> the other sense of the law that's important that we can't fully understand until next week as we look at how Christ fulfills the law is the normative use, that the law is a flashlight showing us what's pleasing to God. The law was given to show us how to relate to God. Israel brought out of Egypt in slavery, brought into the promised land. Here's how you relate to God. And as believers, we need to understand how the law is fulfilled in Christ, but so that as we now, in, in faith in Christ, we then can walk in obedience to God, what's pleasing to Him, and His law reveals God's moral character and how we are to respond to Him and live in relationship with Him. So these three uses of the law will uh, we'll kind of unpack, especially uh, the pedagogical use and the normative use. But it just helps us to understand uh, what God's law is and how we are to respond to it. But I want to conclude by this thought as we think about the law. The law was never meant to save. It was never given to provide salvation. It was given to those who God had already saved to show how to live in relationship with him. But do you know that in the giving of the law, God made provision for the forgiveness of sins? In the giving of the law there in Leviticus he unpacks all the different offerings that could be made for the forgiveness of sins, intentional sins and unintentional sins. And the culmination of God's plan for forgiveness leads us to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. I know we've jumped around a few different places, but uh, the Ten Commandments, if you will, they kind of give you the foundational core of the law, and then everything else is kind of working those things out. You see a lot of if this or whenever this, then do this. Uh, It's God showing his people all the different circumstances uh, in which they're to walk in obedience to him and how to respond to sin in their life. And there are different types of sacrifices that are given. But once a year, on one day, there's one person who can enter the most holy of places in the temple called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, which is the place of God's presence. And the Ten Commandments were put in that Ark uh, as a demonstration of God's holiness. And it was there that sacrifice was made in the holiest of holies by one person alone, the high priest who had to cleanse himself perfectly to go into that place to make sacrifice for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And we see that God's insistence that sin be punished is met continually with his intention to forgive sins by means of a substitutionary sacrifice. God's insistence that sin be punished is met with his intention to forgive sins by means of a substitutionary sacrifice. What do I mean? Look at the summary in Luke and Leviticus 16, verse 29, and we'll, we'll close with this. He says, This is a permanent statue for you in the seventh month of the tenth day, <clears throat> that you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the, the alien resident among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be cleansed from all your sin before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statue. No work was to be done by the people, and yet their forgiveness of sin was, was accomplished on this day. It says, The priest, one person who's anointed and ordained to serve as a high priest in place of his father, will make atonement. He will put on linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the most holy place, He will also make atonement for the tent of the meeting, the altar. He will make atonement for the priest and all the people of the assembly. This is to be a permanent statue for you that to make atonement for the Israelites once a year because of all their sins. And this was done according to the command of Moses. See, God God had given his law and his law was meant to show us how to live in relationship with him. But it exposed our sin. It showed us our need for forgiveness. And what did God do? 
God made provision for the forgiveness of our sins. Just as much as he insisted on the punishment of our sins. And in Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14. We see how all of this comes together in Christ. That the day of atonement. The high priest who went into the holy of holies. And made forgiveness of sins every year for the people's sins. How Jesus who is the ultimate high priest without sin. Goes into the holy of holies before the presence of God. Makes atonement for our sins by his own death. By his own sacrifice, not once a year, but once for all time. And the way he does it is by taking upon himself the curse of the law. It says in Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all that's written in the book of the law and does them. Now it's evident that no one is justified by God before the law for the righteous shall live by faith, it says. But the law is not of faith. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the substitutionary sacrifice. Therefore, it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ became the curse for us so that in Christ Jesus we might receive the promised blessing that God made to Abraham to make us his people, that it might come to us, those who aren't of, of, of the Israelite nation but are Gentiles, so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God's law is good. It reveals his character. It exposes our sin. But it points us to Jesus. If we're to understand God's law, we must understand that we can trust his authority as our creator and our redeemer. But we can know that as the law steps on our toes and shows us our sin, it does so because the same God who insists on judgment for sin is the same God who came down And took on the curse of the law for us and for our sin. So that we might receive the promise by faith of being made right with him. This is the gospel, friends. And so as we talk about the law here in the coming weeks, let it be an encouragement to you that God's law comes to us as people who have been redeemed by his grace through faith in him. And if you don't know him, let this be an invitation to you today to not withhold yourself from him, believing that you can't trust him, that he doesn't know what's good for you, that he's oppressive in giving his commands. But recognize that the God who commands is first the God who creates and the God who redeems. And he came to redeem you through Christ. And he invites you to trust in him and to keep his commands. Let's pray.